everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I am Naomi Schaefer-Riley, and I'm a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And I am Ian Rowe, also a resident fellow at AEI. We have joining us, we're very lucky to have with us, a very popular guy recently, Christopher Rufo, who is going to talk to us a little bit about the subject of anti-bias training. You may have heard a lot about this in the world of education, but he has been looking at its effects in other parts of the world as well. So Ian, why don't I turn it over to you to sort of introduce just how kind of widespread this topic has become. Yes. Well, Christopher, thank you for joining us. I'm in New York and you know, I've run a network of public charter schools and our chancellor in New York, Richard Carranza, recently announced that New York is allocating nearly $25 million to train about 125,000 employees in implicit bias training to lecture folks about white supremacy culture, examining their whiteness. And Chris, you've been doing some amazing reporting about how this kind of anti-bias training is popping up in all sorts of other areas of government. What have you learned and, and, and what even brought you to this subject in the first place? Yeah, you know, I, I really stumbled into this almost by accident. A friend of mine sent me an email and he said, hey, the city of Seattle is holding a mandatory training that is for white employees only called Interrupting Internalized Racial Superiority and Whiteness. It just kind of piqued my interest. It kind of clicked something in the back of my mind. And I said, I should learn a little bit more about this. So I filed a public records request, totally forgot about it for the two months that it took for them to send it to me. And then they sent me the materials from this course, which were just astonishing. And things like claiming that intellectualization, individuation, and objectivity are white supremacist values and encouraging employees of the city of Seattle to essentially confess their whiteness and internalized kind of essential sin in front of the trainers and kind of join the cause of anti-racism. And once I put that information out there, it kind of exploded. And then I got started getting a series of leaks from almost every public institution imaginable, from the smallest local school district in, in the middle of Kansas, all the way up to the Treasury Department, NASA, the Federal Reserve, the Veterans Administration, the Marine Corps, the FBI. And I discovered this really- The FBI? The FBI, yeah, which is now holding weekly workshops on intersectionality. And I realized that this yes, is- Yes, the, the Russia investigation is over now. So <laughs> right, they exactly. They're, they're really investigating. They're, they're investigating everything now. But it really showed me that this idea, the kind of philosophy of critical race theory, and then the related concepts of intersectionality kind of whiteness, blackness, et cetera, are really ubiquitous and pervasive in almost all of our institutions. And yet there's very little pushback, very little critical thinking, very little reporting on it. I think it's been kind of a journey to dig into it, to expose it, to analyze it, and really to push back against it. It's amazing the leaks that you're talking about about how many different places this was happening and nobody felt comfortable pushing back at all or saying, this is crazy or why are we doing this? And that it's happening all over the country in both private and public contexts. Yeah, I think it really shows the kind of cultural dominance, the cultural hegemony of the progressive narrative. And once it establishes itself, it's almost, you can't really push back against it because built into that narrative, if you oppose it, it means that you're guilty of whatever it is they're fighting against. So if you say, well, you know what, I really don't think that a workshop on interrupting my whiteness is appropriate, 
they can basically fold that objection into their epistemological foundation and say, well, that's just an expression of your own internalized white supremacy. And these are words that have tremendous power. If someone calls you a white supremacist at the workplace, I mean, that is potentially catastrophic to your career, to your reputation, to your social status, and to your financial security. So they're wielding these concepts that originated in academic journals and the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, but they've migrated from academia where they were kind of restricted into their own kind of internal discourse. And they've really been weaponized by diversity training firms, by progressive activists, by kind of ideologues within these institutions. And they're quite fearsome weapons. And I think it takes someone that has not only the kind of independence of position, but also true independence of thought and courage to fight against it. And that's what I'm trying to do. There are some other great people that are working on this issue, but you know, we are vastly outnumbered. I think that that is really the kind of contour of the battle that we're facing. Although to some degree, it's comforting that you're actually getting leaks, right? Because somehow the folks that are receiving this training are saying it's wrong, even though the cancel culture may be inhibiting their ability to speak in their existing context, they're still looking for an outlet to say this is not right. They are. And, and that's really been the common refrain. And some of these practices are really humiliating. So I've been kind of apprised both via documentation and from multiple sources. In Seattle and King County, which I think are furthest ahead, you know, we're the home of Robin D'Angelo and others. What they're doing is they'll bring you in to a kind of mandatory whiteness training. Again, segregated for whites only, which is like a phrase, honestly, that you'd think would be banished from the American experience, like whites only, blacks only. This is all public employees. Is this, does this include school administrators, people like that as well? You know, this is for the city of Seattle and King County government. But I know that there are kind of analogous programs in Seattle Public Schools, and I have some pending records requests to explore that as well. What happens we'll if you're like, mixed race? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, these complicated <laughs> you know, questions. Half of me is over here, half of me is over there. I don't know. But it really is humiliating. And I think the, some of the messages that I've gotten are really heartbreaking because they say, you know, I've been a King County Library employee for 25 years. I love learning. I love books. I love helping kids but I'm hauled into this diversity training session. I'm forced to stand to say, you know, hi, my name is Joanne. I am white and I have internalized white supremacy and white superiority. I mean, it, it really is. And I, I hesitate to use kind of inflammatory analogies or comparison points, but it really does follow the logic of the struggle session. Yeah. And I find it something that is humiliating, right? And people play along, people put up with it because let's say you're a 55 year old librarian and you've been working in a library system for 25 years, you're close to retirement, you're close to your pension, you may have trouble getting another job. These are people who are really being bullied and intimidated. And I think that it's really incumbent upon us to fight for them. And they're not willing to come out publicly and put their name and face to it, but I think we can serve almost as their advocates and almost their avatars and let's sort of talk about like what the purpose of this is. Have you dug in at all to the research on exactly what this anti-bias training accomplishes? I mean, there was an article a couple of years ago, I remember, in the Washington Monthly Magazine, which is a you know fairly liberal magazine, that talked about how anti-bias training that was applied in the child welfare context actually had no impact at all, except to sort of further isolate people and further confirm biases that they already had. 
and so I was wondering kind of why we've embraced this so thoroughly and, and what the research actually is there. There's a huge divide, and I think you've hit the nail on the head. There's a recent study that just came out, a professor at Harvard who studied corporate diversity programs. He studied 800 firms over a period of 30 years. So this is really a kind of gold standard, rigorous, deep kind of longitudinal study. And he found out that diversity training programs have no benefit and in many cases actually cause harm. And his conclusion was simple. These companies would be far better off doing nothing. But the ideas that people latch on to, they're not doing it because it's effective. I think the evidence is pretty clear. It's not effective. They're doing it because it is effective for their establishing their power and dominance within these institutions. It's really kind of a political move. They're saying, this is an entry point. We can say we have you know, social scientific implicit bias studies, white privilege studies, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a foothold for them to establish a kind of permanent ideological power base within public and private institutions. And I think what motivates people to kind of give into this at the top, let's say the management, is fear. They say, well, you know, oh, all right, we'll hire this firm, we'll kick out the money, we'll take some staff time to do it, because I don't want to be accused to yeah. be the person that is known in my firm of being against diversity training. And I think it's a combination of cowardice and fear that really drives these decisions. And I've talked to, you know, I'm in Seattle, Washington, so I know folks in the education system, but a lot of folks in the technology center. And I had a dinner with some kind of a round table of senior executives at some of the big tech firms here. And they say, oh, we know it's total BS. We don't believe anything about it. We'll click the little trainings, but you don't dare speak out against it. That's the end of your career. So I think that that's the that's dynamic terrifying. we have to reverse. We can throw kind of reports out there. We can do the investigative pieces. We can kind of destroy the foundations intellectually of critical race theory. But the key dynamic that we need to change is the incentive system within those institutions. And until we change that, it is going to continue to spread until it really is the operating ideology of every institution in the United States. I mean, what's interesting about this, it seems like it's a conversation almost exclusively within the white community. It sounds like white leadership is coercing white employees to confess your sins. Have you heard any feedback from non-white people about this movement? Are any of the leaks coming from Black employees or Asians who think this is kind of screwy and this isn't how I see myself in this organization. And who feel super uncomfortable with this. Yeah, definitely. I, I've had leaks and talked to folks really from across the spectrum. And a lot of people kind of just put up with it or go through it or don't want to ruffle any feathers or rock the boat. But a lot of people who are kind of read into these issues, they can see how it's destructive and damaging. It hurts their own kind of independence and equality as well. And I think one of the things that is really, really astonishing is that when, again, this is common across many different trainings, this idea that individuality, intellectualization, objectivity, mathematics are all kind of white supremacist values. And I've had people, you know, African-Americans or Asian-Americans, they say, wait a minute, are you saying that African-Americans or Asian-Americans or Hispanic-Americans are not capable of intellectualization or individuality or math, that's deeply insulting and patronizing. It might even be considered racist. <laughs> I think it is. And I think that, you know, Ian, that's exactly right. And I think the kind of deep irony is that if you look at the kind of really disgusting racial ideas of the 1920s, so kind of scientific racism of a century ago, 
it was really predicated on a lot of these same concepts that have now been kind of flipped, where you're saying, we see race first. We can judge you based on your kind of biological essence. And human beings can be reduced to this kind of magical essence of whiteness or blackness. What does that mean? How can you reduce someone to this essence that can't be measured as kind of pseudoscientific in nature? And then they're even adopting kind of neo-segregationism within these institutions. They're demanding separate facilities, separate training, separate dormitories. And I think we've kind of come full circle into this bizarro world where now the progressive left is adopting some of the worst conceptual frames of the kind of horrible scientific racism of the past. And I think that as we look forward, as we exit this kind of moral panic, I think 20 years from now, hopefully sooner, we're going to say, wow, we were really off base there. That's embarrassing. That's cringeworthy. It's shameful. Well, I, I certainly hope so. But what I worry about with the, the fact that these kinds of trainings are being introduced into education systems is that you are introducing these ideas to kids at a young age. And unlike the 55-year-old librarian who can look at this and say, this is insane, and I know enough to know that this is in and of itself racist, these kids are going to grow up now with this idea. And Ian and I have talked about this a lot on previous podcasts. We're telling the kids, oh, no, math is something that's not for Black people. Intellectual life is not something that's for Black people. Rational thought is not that something. The and nuclear so, family is not for right, Black the people. The nuclear family is not. And so being on time. This, being on <laughs> punctuality, exactly. <laughs> but if you tell this to kids at a younger and younger age, they're not going to have the kind of perspective that, you know, someone middle-aged who sort of looks at this and says, oh, we'll just go through it and we all know to ignore it. Because the younger kids do not know to ignore it. And they see this as coming from authority figures in their communities. I think that's exactly right. And I think, unfortunately, education is the space and the kind of battle space in which this ideology is most deeply rooted. I think that's really the thing that is shocking, that is very difficult. The educational kind of institutions are decentralized, different school districts, different classes, different administrations. So it's very hard to say we're going to root it out from the top down. You actually have to get into each little place and push. But parents are at a huge disadvantage because there are kind of full-time paid employees and contractors and trainers that their livelihoods both depend on perpetuating this ideology, but then they're also essentially incentivized to keep pushing it as far as they can. So we're really looking at an entrenched kind of industry throughout education that has been radicalized. And I think what you're seeing now as well with the COVID shutdown is that parents are tuning in a little bit more to what their kids are learning. They may even now, as school is starting in the next week or two, have kind of a peak window into what their teachers are teaching. And I think they're going to be shocked. And you know, I'm sorting through a trove of documents from New York public schools. I had another leak of the kind of ethnic studies curriculum from New York public schools. And just a cursory glance at it is terrifying if you care about the principles of equality, of freedom, of of kind of old school liberalism. And it really is the kind of turning the education system into a kind of activism factory. And teachers are radicalizing students and alienating parents. And I think it's a very dangerous dynamic. And, you know, we can laugh at the FBI holding intersectionality trainings. Most of those agents are probably rolling their eyes and, and waiting for lunch. But I think you're exactly right. When you put a first grader through a kind of 
critical race theory curriculum, and they even have kids' books. I mean, they're teaching critical race theory to two and three-year-olds, how to be an activist. I think it is something that is very dangerous, and I'm glad you're shining a light on it. All right. Well, we will have to have you back on once you've gone through that whole trove of New York City documents. We cannot wait to find out really what's going on, although I think you're right that a lot of parents are going to be watching this on Zoom meetings, and hopefully will be as horrified as we are. Chris, thank you. What you are doing is so extremely important. Yes, we really appreciate it. And thank you so much for joining us today. This has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? You can actually get episodes of Are You Kidding Me on the AEI website or wherever you get your podcasts. So thank you very much. I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. Have a great day.